Welcome back to the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato. My partner in crime and co-conspirator Scott Bernstein is not in the studio today. He's actually in Las Vegas. He's uh, getting down with the Mob Museum in Vegas, so he'll be here next week. But we're happy to have a guest co-host today, special guest co-host, Daniel Waugh, who is um, an esteemed author and crime historian. Um, I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with his books. Off Color is a book he wrote about the Purple Gang. Venita, a book about the Italian Mafia. He wrote Gangs of St. Louis. Egan's Rats. He's got another book coming out. Um, He's a Detroit guy. So we're going to hold it down. Bernie's not here, but uh, we've got Dan in studio. I'm with you guys. So we're going to talk about old school Detroit gangsters today. Prohibition era gangsters, the Purple Gang, some stuff about the Italian Mafia. So... Anyhow, welcome, Dan. Happy to have you in here. Ah, thanks, Jimmy. Thanks a lot for having me. So I think the point of departure here, I think, should be the Purple Gang. That's the most recognizable organized crime group, I think, if we're talking about Detroit during the Prohibition era. So tell us a little bit about the Purple Gang, Dan. I mean, who, who were these guys? Where were they from? What kinds of crimes were they involved in? And then we'll get into more like specific stuff about it. But just give us a general outline of who they were. Sure. Uh, the Purple Gang, they were uh, almost exclusively uh, Jewish Americans. Uh, some of them were born overseas in uh, what was then known as the Pale of Settlement, a section of what was then Russia, uh, Poland, uh, Austria-Hungary, that kind of thing. But quite a few of them were born here in Detroit in the old Jewish neighborhood, which used to be called Little Jerusalem. Uh, it was located a couple blocks east and west of Hastings Street, uh, north of Gratiot, uh, Hastings Street was the main drag. And a lot of them grew up together, and a lot of them went to the same school. Uh, it was called the, the Bishop Ungraded School. There was a regular school, and then there was a, an ungraded trade school for incorrigible students next door. Of course, they all went to that one. That <laughs> <laughs> yeah, makes sense. <laughs> and uh, they uh, grew, they committed a bunch of juvenile crimes as kids, uh, one myth about how they got their name was that they uh, robbed a couple of pushcart vendors on Hastings Street. And one of them supposedly marked to the other, those bad boys are bad, they're tainted. The other one said, yeah, they're tainted, off color, like a purple gang. That's how they supposedly got their name. Even though it was almost certainly an invention of a newspaper. Writer, sure. But it sounds cool. Yeah. As uh, they grew older, they attracted the attention of a bunch of uh, Jewish monsters who had moved out to Detroit from New York the Lower East Side. Michigan started Prohibition about two years before the rest of America did. It started in uh, here in Michigan, the state of Michigan, in May of 1918. Booze was completely outlawed. And uh, these guys came out here from New York and decided to make some easy money in the liquor business because anybody could see that uh, the 16th Amendment would soon be made into law. And plus you could... Um, one of the reasons why I think it was so ridiculous to have prohibition here early, although they, they knew it would go federal eventually. I mean, the, the, the people who were advocating prohibition knew that eventually it would be a universal law. But in the meantime, what was ridiculous about it was you could just go to Toledo or Windsor. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> bring, booze, bring booze into Detroit, mm-hmm. uh, which is not very far, right? Either way, it, pretty close to, to us. So, um, I know that uh, a lot of the um, early examples of bootlegging, it wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, guys manufacturing their own uh, bootleg li- liquor. It was just smuggling it from Canada and um, o- Ohio. Uh, there was smuggling, but a lot of people did do their own cooking. Oh, like, uh, like yeah, moonshine kind of thing? Yeah. yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, two of the uh, older guys that came out from New York that I was just talking about, one of them was named uh, Jake Traeger. And uh, he set up, like, whiskey stills all oh, that's around right. little, little he, Jerusalem. Oh, oh, yeah, I think you, you and, talked about Okay, I, yeah. I, I remember and, that. Uh, yeah. it, that it's, it's kind of a, a low-rent way to do it, I mean, because the quality was often pretty shitty. Right. But uh, it was easy to produce, and it was easy to camouflage. And uh, see, that's the thing about the Purple Gang. They never really got that much into smuggling, especially in the early years. They were yeah. much more reliant on hijacking. 
Ah, they'd let yeah. other people smuggle it across the river in the dead of night, and right. as they're unloading their booze, the purple gang would come out of the shadows and stick them up. Yeah, and if they've resisted. Of course, they killed them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because the underworld landscape at the time, um, we talk about the Jewish purple gang, the Italian mafia, but everyone was in on it. It wasn't like just a couple of ethnic groups. I mean, even mom and pop people. Oh yeah, were hooking up, and 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 even just anyone who could make a buck could go over to Windsor and try to smuggle something over in a toboggan or something when the, when the lake was, uh, the river was frozen. So everyone was in on it. So what, what my overall point is, um, it would be easy for the purple gang to pick off a lot of these, a lot of these people smuggling booze who are not as well equipped or well armed to. to, Right. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's the thing. It's like, you know, plenty of people, well, you know, average Joes, like you said, looking to make a few easy bucks in the liquor business would find themselves at the mercy of <laughs> sure. ruthless guys like the Purple Gang. Is, and it often had, you know, tragic results. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so the guys you're talking about, the early guys, is this the same thing as like the Sugar House, Oakland Sugar House, or is that different than the... Actually, there's a, a lot of confusion about that. And that's yeah. what I try to straighten out in my book. Yeah, is that yeah, All go these ahead. different subgroups like the Oakland Sugar House Gang, uh, the Third Street Terrors, the Third Street Navy, they all basically consisted of the same individuals. Okay. Uh, the Oakland Sugar House Gang would probably be their original name in like the very early 20s. Uh, they got that name. There was a sugar warehouse on Oakland Avenue where that was run by a guy, one of the New Yorkers uh, by the name of Isidore Cantor and his partner, George Goldberg. Uh, at this sugar warehouse, they sold corn sugar sacks, which were an, ing- oh, an important ingredient for homemade moonshining. Now, Ezra Cantor, he was basically, I don't i don't know if I'd go so far as to call him a gangster, but he was basically a, a regular guy. That's how he saw himself, who sold sugar, what people do with it, you know, after I sell it to them, that's their <laughs> business. I'm not breaking the law. Right. And right, so right. all the young pur- purple gangsters, many of whom, quite frankly, were just in their late teens or early 20s at the time, they started working out of his place on Oakland Avenue. But Oakland Avenue was very close to Cam Tramick, which is where a particularly powerful uh, Italian mobster named uh, Chester Lamar was then operating. And Chester Lamar saw that, like, Isidore Cantor was making all these money and all these illegal moonshine stills around Little Jerusalem, and he moved in to try to extort them. And that's what touched off the first gang war that the Purple Gang was involved in in 1923. So, let me just so we can get our... uh, individual straight here so the main guys that we think of in the purple gang like the bernstein brothers and some of those dudes at this point they're still younger dudes coming up under like can't candor and and those uh most of them were abe was the oldest abe was significantly older okay uh, abe in 1923 abe bernstein was already 32 okay so he wasn't a young turk no at this, at this no. point so, by the way, these, um, I think a lot of people listening to this are probably aware, but Scott Bernstein, our uh, uh, esteemed colleague, uh, he's related. He's oh, related yeah. to the, yes. the Bernstein. Really too bad he isn't, he isn't here for this one. Yeah, I know, of all, <laughs> yeah. of all episodes, right. So, um, so, but tell us about, because, I, you know, I've always been under the impression that for the most part, the Italians and the Purples, I wouldn't say they were best buds, but they, they coexisted. S- coexisted, either right. stayed out of each other's way, maybe sometimes even dealt with each other. But you're saying at, at this early point there was actually conflict, and, and I mean maybe not. This is something we we get when it go down this rabbit hole. You and I talk about in 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 my book, early organized crime in Detroit, and your book in Venita, in terms of 1923. What what is the mafia? Right? Mm-hmm. Is Chester Lamar? Is that even really what we think of as the mafia? Like <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, that's a that's a difficult subject, but he was definitely an Italian gangster. Yes. Whether whether he was official mafia yet or not, you know, I think probably by 23, I would say he was. Yeah, he was. Say, Abs- yeah, I, I would think yeah, so. It's, but It's kind of an anomaly because he wasn't Sicilian. Right, and right. And the, the, the mafia in Detroit almost exclusively didn't admit. Right. You know, mainland Italians at right. that point. Even, but even today. Yeah, but... but <laughs> Lamar was there. He's right in the middle of it with the yeah. Giannolas. He switch sized a whole bunch of times in their war that right. they had. I mean, he's quite a fascinating figure. He could probably be worthy of his own biography if anybody ever decided no, to. No, I, I, I think I think so as well. Um, 
So he gets in a conflict with these Jewish bootleggers. So tell us about that. I interrupted you, but go back to that if you, if you can. Uh, Lamar, he was a, uh, Chester Lamar was a classic extortionist. Uh, in the late teens, one of the early places where, like, the young purple gangsters were hanging around on Hastings Street was a gambling den called the Working Man's Cafe. It's an illegal gambling hall that was ran out of the back of a dry goods store on Hastings Street. Of course, Chester Lamar got wind of it, and he extorted these two Jewish game gamblers who were working there. Uh, the, he the head guy was uh, used the name Joe Murphy. No one seems to know what his, you know, Hebraic name was. It's lost in the sands of time. Of course, you know, Joe Murphy may be a tough guy, but he's no Chester Lamar. You know, what's, <laughs> what the hell is he going to do? Right. And so he pays protection, and eventually a group of rival Sicilians tried to kill Chester Lamar outside the Working Man's Cafe. He had to leave town for a while, but long and the short of it is Chester Lamar had dealt with these Jewish gangsters on Hastings Street before, and he considered them to be soft and weak. You know, easy pickings. Yeah. So when he went in and sent the, around to extort some of the uh, Jewish moon signers in Little Jerusalem, Jake Traeger basically told him to go fuck himself. So Chester Lamar had him killed on Hastings Street. Then Chester Lamar sets his sights on the Sugar House on Oakland Avenue. Once again, Isidore Cantor tells him to go fuck himself. A couple days later, Isidore Cantor runs into one of uh, Chester Lamar's guys on Hastings Street, a guy by the name of Frank Speed. Supposedly, he was supposed to be real quick on the trigger of a pistol. Well, he wasn't quick enough because Isidore Cantor <laughs> pulled a gun and shot him dead. Got ruled to be justifiable homicide. Police even granted him a permit uh, to carry a gun. He started Isidore Cantor started getting a whole bunch of death threats. But is there, see, the thing about Isidore Cantor, he, he didn't believe in any gangster code of silence. He had no problem telling, talking to the press. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, this piece of shit guy who I won't name in Hamtramck's trying to cut in my hard-earned money, I'm not going to let that happen. If he wants trouble, he'll fucking... Yeah. They'll find it. Yeah. Well, of course, Chester Lamare one night sends a bunch of his guys past the Oakland Sugar House and shoots the place to shreds. I'm even convinced that they used an automatic weapon in it. Maybe a good three or four years before machine guns became noticeable. Right. The evidence is unclear. Yeah. But Isidore Cantor is wounded. Another one of his guys is killed. A couple ladies that they were partying with are shot. It's actually a pretty big shooting. It was just around Labor Day of 23 that this happened. And Isidore Cantor's laid up in the hospital, recovering. Gives another press conference. You know, that son of a blah, 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 blah. But see, while this is happening, some of the guys that work with Izzy, guys like Charlie Leiter and Henry Shore and A. Bernstein, they're looking. I was like, okay, what is it with this guy? He needs to tone it down a little bit. But the, the shooting war continued. And uh, some of the uh, young purple gangsters, Harry Fleischer was one, cut his teeth in this war as far as murdering. Finally, uh, the Italians caught up with Isidore Cantor. Uh, he went out to New York in February of 24 to arrange for a damaged automobile to be shipped back to Detroit or whatever. And one of his friends betrayed him, and uh, they fished him out of the East River a couple months later. So was that because Bernstein and the other guys later in them, did they make an arrangement with the Italians? Like, if we get rid of this dude... And you could get Lamar to calm the fuck down. Maybe we can go back to like Th that's a definite possibility. A, a it's impossible to know at this late right. date, but yeah, it's right. I could definitely see something like that happening. Yeah. So I'm just fascinated by the the politics of of this, and I know I know Scott would geek out on this too. <laughs> um, <laughs> if Lamar is in a, uh, as we would say in Italiano, Cesare Lamare, <laughs> uh, Chester Lamar. If he's in a shooting war with the purples, or at least the the proto purples, um, in twenty three, who's the who's the who's the Don at that point? Is that Caruso? Who? Yeah, it would be Ignacio Caruso so at he, that point. So is he? I mean, how much autonomy does does Lamar have to like? I get the impression you know I mean? that I get the impression that he has a decent amount because I think that that's kind of like the deal that they worked out in twenty one right. when the Giannola of Italy war finally petered out after God knows how many people had been killed. Yeah, right, right. I get And I get the impression that you and I have talked about this before, that Ignacio Caruso, might, he might have been the boss in name. I see. I get the impression that he's more of like a figurehead. Yeah. Especially given the way the war ended. Yeah. And that uh, Catalanati was actually the one pulling the strings. Yeah. Until another, a day or another year or two later when he just got rid of Caruso altogether and said, you know what, I'm in charge now. You're on the sidelines. Right. Because I'm just – and. Lamar was in league with Catalanati, right? 
that they weren't they part of like the same faction, the West Side faction? Uh, how it started with this, Lamar started out with the Giannolas. He flipped to the Vitales, which was that kind of Talanati was right. that side. Then in around 1920 or so, Lamar became a third party in the war. He had his own crew of mainland Italian gangsters. So he kind of half-assed, went, made his own bid for leadership of, of the, the family, if you right. will. Uh, the police called them the Romans right. because yeah. of the, they weren't Sicilian. Right. Okay. So um, back to the purple. So they survived this shooting war. Well, not all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, Bernstein, A. Bernstein, his brothers, Fleischer, some of the other heavyweights. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point do we start thinking of them as not like affiliates of like the Oakland Sugar House gang, but like the purple gang, like their own Jewish syndicate. They really started to come into their own after that war ended because they settled into a good working relationship with, with, uh, with the Sicilians, you know, because guys like Bernstein, Charlie Leiter, Henry Shore, it's like, you know what? There's plenty of money for all of us. You know, we can work with you. And guys like Italianati, they, they said, you know, amen. Yeah, absolutely. We can do business. And that's where that mutual respect between the Purples and the Sicilians really started to come into play. At that point, they they really started to take off in the mid-20s. The name Purple, the earliest reference to the name Purple Gang that I could find was a newspaper article in January of 1928. Uh, it's pretty late. I would have thought it was earlier, but yeah, that's, there is. That's uh, there was a. I mean, I, obviously, you're the expert. I'm not. I'm not trying. I'm not challenging you. <laughs> no, no, not I'm at just all. saying, like that. That strikes me as if you were to just ask me on the street, I would assume it was a few years earlier than that. Mm-hmm. That's pretty interesting. Uh, the name might have been coined by Inspector Henry Garvin. Oh yeah. There was a, a Detroit news reporter named Jack Carlisle. Great guy. He wrote. He worked the crime beat during uh, Prohibition. Fat Pete Licavoli liked him so much, he actually took him along on a rum-running expedition once. <laughs> Field research. Yeah, he, Carlisle, years later, when they interviewed him in the early 80s for a newspaper series about the Purple Gang, he said that he didn't name the inspector, but he said, yeah, the name came from a particularly colorful Detroit police inspector who loved to talk to the press. And who was that? That's Henry Garvin. That yeah. guy lived to talk to the press. Yeah. But the name came around in uh, January of uh, 28. There were a couple of Detroit uh, cops. One was named Max Wisman, and the other was named Vivian Welch. And they were shaking down uh, alley breweries in Detroit's North End. That was a big racket for the Purple Gang. Basically, breweries that would be like in garages and barns that were to the rear of residences. They'd homebrew beer there and sell it around the neighborhood. And, of course, these two cops go around and shake them down for protection money. Wisman gets caught, gets fired off the force, but Welch escapes detection, so he's still making the extortion rounds. Finally, uh, you know, the Bernstein and the bosses said, you know what, we don't give a shit that this guy's a fucking cop. You know, if he wants to swim in the deep end of the pool, he's going to drown. Yeah. And so they ended up killing him in uh, right on the Hamtramck-Detroit city line. I think what, ha- what happened was is that they were trying to get him across into Detroit to knock him off there just kind of as a courtesy to the Detroit police or whatever. Yeah. And so in the, 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 the heat from that murder, which of course naturally was never solved. That's when the name purple gang first appeared in uh, a newspaper, the article of the Detroit times, a paper, which you know, no yeah. longer exists. Right. But yeah, like I said they're quoting an anonymous, the newspaper, anonymous uh, Detroit police inspector saying that how the notorious purple gang is under suspicion in the murder of, you know, Officer Vivian Welch, blah, blah, blah. Well, where do you think he got that term from? Because this is this is after the, was it Cleaners and Dryers War? Yeah, there's another story that, like, in, in some instances of their, their, like, terrorization of Detroit's cleaning and dyeing industry. Right. That in, they, they would ruin truckloads of clothes, of, of clothes by tossing can, jar, cans of purple paint on them. Right. That's definitely feasible. One of their top members who came out here from New York was a guy named Eddie Fletcher, who was actually a professional boxer in New York. Yeah. Featherweight. Fought in Madison Square Garden. Wow. And you talk about a wrong turn. But yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. There, uh, when he came out here to Detroit, everybody, all the boys knew who he was. And it's like, you know, you know, why don't you put the gloves on one last time? Let's see you in action. So he goes over to a place on the east side, Fairview and Mac. And uh, when he came out to fight, him and his seconds were all wearing purple jerseys. Oh. That's another 
speculation of how the name came around. God, it's fascinating, though, because I don't think we'll ever know. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what I say in my book. It's like, no, I even say, like, in the first sentence of the first chapter, nobody yeah. knows where the hell the name came yeah, from. Yeah, right. Because all, all the possibilities. All of those are plausible, mm -hmm. right? So, how self aware were they? Like, like, okay, so law enforcement, they're calling them the Purple Gang. The media, is, they're going to run with that as a nice ring to it. How self-aware are they? Are they? Are they? Are Bernstein and these guys? Uh, are they like, yeah, we're the Purple Gang? I mean, what? Actually, what would you no. Say? During, uh, when some of them got bust, there was a big bust in uh, May of 1929, and one of their number, uh, Joe Honey Miller, who's actually Sicilian, by the way, his real name was Giuseppe Maracliata. Uh, oh, that was a colorful guy. Oh God, he had picture. He had gold cap teeth in his mouth. <laughs> I mean, you know, he, like a he eventually wound up in Eloy's, the the metal hospital. Yeah, and they asked him about it. He he basically lost his shit. He ran it and raved to the newspaper. Man, every time I go around, people are talking about the Purple Gang, the Purple Gang. I mean, who the hell got up that name? Yeah, they just yeah. kind of shrugged their shoulders at it. They said it's the same thing. In, same thing in St. Louis. They say Egan's rats. This Egan's rats. That. You know. Yeah, yeah. I was um, so. They were just viewing it as, hey, we're just doing our thing. And you want to call us Purple Gang, whatever. Right. But that that's different than, like, the Italian mafia, which is, this is Cosa Nostra. Like, that, mm -hmm. that, 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 like you either are Cosa Nostra or you're not. Right. Um, you look at um, other groups, like, um, what, like the Japanese Yakuza. Right. Those are very distinct. Like, you either are a member or you're not. Mm -hmm. The Purple Gang never endorsed that kind or internalized no. that kind of and logic. It, and it that, worked against them in the end because they were so loosely organized. Yeah. I like to describe the purple gang as being in like tiers. The top tank gang, top tier gangsters would be obviously the Bernsteins, the Fleischers, uh, Henry Shore, Charlie Leiter, Sam Garfield. Uh, second tier would be like, you know, the heavy hitters like Abe Axler, Eddie Fletcher, Joe Honey Miller, Irving Milberg, et cetera. Third tier would be like, you know, the the young guys. You don't really know. Like Ziggy Selwood would probably be like the top third mm -hmm. tier gigs. He was the guy who like was drinking in a blind in a blind pig, got drunk, saw a diamond ring on one barfly's hand. He's like, give me your fucking ring. That tells him, you know, piss off. So, Irving, you know, uh, Selwood cracks him over the head with a beer bottle then whips out a switchblade and just lops the guy's finger right <laughs> off. And there's took the ring. <laughs> He also killed his brother-in-law, too, right in front of his family in April of oh, 1928. Man. Yeah, he was a little trigger-happy is the adjective I'd use. I actually, want to, I want to talk about how violent they were in a moment, but back to the politics of the situation, talk, talking about a disadvantage. So, you know, we always know there's exceptions to, to all these so-called rules, but in the Italian mafia, if, if you put your hands on a made guy, there's there's supposedly going to be retaliation from possibly the whole organization, which would give you that. That's one of the advantages, one of the perks <laughs> of being a part of that fraternity. Right. Whereas, so like with the purples, I can see that as an advantage where, where maybe one of the second tier or first tier or, you know, the lower tier purples, someone, even if it's some Joe blow in the bar puts their hands on him, He's, he's kind of on his, I mean, and these guys were tough guys who could handle themselves, but, mm -hmm. but, you know, you never know. They could run into somebody who's more formidable, and uh, they're still basically on their own, right? There was, there'd be no, like, code where you, he could go to Abe Bernstein, go to the Don, and be like, this guy put his hands on me, and... Uh, it, it wouldn't be an official thing. I mean, he right. could probably squawk up the ladder if he wanted to. Sure. Maybe something would happen. Maybe it wouldn't. Right. Or he, knowing how the Purple Gang was, he might just decide to handle it on his own. Pro yeah, you know, right. the hell of it. Yeah, or, and, or what would get their attention, the leadership would be... If there's a financial interest in yeah, that's you, the big you helping thing. me <laughs> helping me settle this, right? But if it's just me getting in a bar fight, they might be like, "That's your own, that's your own problem," mm -hmm. you know. Um, so let's talk about because I think we think about the Purple Gang as um, one of the reasons why they're so infamous and notorious and well known is because of how violent they were. And, and you're already talking about this, even as you know, as early as 1923, or even before that, you're talking about the the um, Vitali Gianola War, which was an internal uh, war within the Detroit Mafia, extremely violent. And when I was doing the research for my book, 
and uh, I think you'll agree with me. Um, I was really struck at how violent things were with, with between these gangsters, and it makes me think of, I, I don't want to get too, like, down the sociological rabbit hole here, but I think there's a narrative for some people in this city who are um, maybe older than 50 in their 60s, 70s, maybe even 40s, that Detroit, there was a golden age. It was a peaceful, prosperous place. And then after 67, it all went to hell, and it's just yeah, nothing That's, nothing that's a fairy tale. Yeah. yeah, right, right. And there's no question that Detroit is a violent city. I mean, just statistically today, there's no question yeah, about but, that. But to think that this is something that started after 67 uh, uh, no. just is not, this is is not all, true. This has always been a very tough town. Yeah, and it can be very hard on certain people, as, as you know, as we as we've seen. Yeah, because I mean, when I was going through the newspaper archives, I mean, and I think you'll back me up. Pretty much every day, there were murders. Yeah, every day, and I don't know if anyone's ever compared the data, and I don't know if I don't know if if you could even do that. I mean, you'd have to the police records are gone. You'd, you'd have to do like a content analysis through the newspapers mm-hmm. and 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 uh, death records, and I, I don't I don't know if anyone would have the time to do that, but. I wonder statistically how it compares with how violent the city is today, because I bet it's comparable if you adjust for population and things like that. Yeah, I think I kind of half-assed did this about 10 years ago, just like I'm my own. It wasn't an official thing, but the totals were about equal to today, maybe even a a hair more violent in the past. Yeah. Maybe in like the... uh, the 80s or 90s, like during, you know, when crack was, yeah. was at its hut. Yeah. Then the modern period might have eclipsed Spiked. the old days. Yeah. But, yeah, nowadays, in the 2020s, I would definitely say that 100 years ago was more violent. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, it was really striking to me. Um, and not even just, I, I don't want to digress too much, but not even, I mean, I was interested in the gangster stuff. But even just the same kind of shit here now, like, husband kills wife with an axe and like m- mother kills her kid. Mm-hmm. Like same fucked up shit. Oh yeah. <laughs> the evangelista murders on yeah, St. Aubin. Right, right. Psycho goes into the house and slaughters a family with, with, uh, with an axe, six people. And there are hints of like maybe some kind of a weird cult like yes, religion. Yeah. That evangelista is pretty, I mean, that is like a whole, and it's still unexplained. They still, right. There, the, the police had a prime suspect who died uh, of, I think of natural causes, maybe like five years later. I can't think of the fellow's name right off the bat, but who the hell knows if it was him or not Yeah, or why this happened. I mean, it'd definitely be worthy of some further investigation. No, I agree. That's a fascinating case study. And, and my overall point is not to excuse the kind of violence that's going on now because right. I agree it's bad and, and we need to think of constructive ways on how, how to reduce that. But there's no point in romanticizing a period that never existed. Exactly. <laughs> comparing it to Every this. now and again, I'll see something on the internet about how gangsters of old are classier or this and that. <laughs> that I was like, fucking please, <laughs> yeah. shut the hell up. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know I know that Scott Bernstein, I mean, he. I know he, he um, gets this at a lot of his book talks where he, especially when he's talking to Jewish groups, and he says that um, there's this response that like, well, the purple gangs, those were the good gangsters. They were the Robin Hood, and they were defending the oh, community. Nice, yeah. And Scott's always like, no, they were just as cutthroat, ruthless as any other any other group. I even say that in the introduction <laughs> of my book. It's like anybody who thinks that the old days were, but just remember that on one occasion, the purple gang went down to Cleveland, grabbed two guys who had killed one of theirs, and basically beat the shit out of them with a hammer, cut, caved their skulls in, then stabbed them through the brain with an ice pick. Yeah. And one of the guys actually, his bowels voided as he died. Yeah. Very classic. Does that sound? <laughs> yeah. Does that sound like a code of honor? <laughs> like, and so, yeah. And so, let's talk about like some of the more infamous cases of violence because um, some of the most infamous hits, gangland hits, were related to the Purple Gang, like the um, the uh, massacre at the apartment complex. You want to tell us about yeah, that? Yeah, there was a couple of them. Uh, right. In March of twenty-seven, uh, the Miraflores massacre was done in response to. Uh, the killings of some purple associates. One of them was a, pick, a purple gang liquor distributor named Johnny Reed, who came here from St. Louis. He was a former member of Vegan's Rats. And uh, Johnny Reed had got in, into it with a rogue Sicilian gangster by the name of Mike DePisa. They uh, shot it out over a couple of weeks in the, the summer of 1926, and uh, DePisa got his ass whipped to the point where he basically came to the peace treaty and gave up a couple of his guys to be killed in order to save his own skin. 
But a couple months later, the piece that comes back brings in a guy from Chicago who kills Johnny Reed. This guy was named Frank Wright. He was Polish. I never was able to find out his true name. But Frank Wright uh, killed another Purple Gang liquor distributor named Jake Weinberg. And then that really got the Purples pissed off. They set a trap for him, and they brought in one of Johnny Reed's buddies who is known to underworld history as Fred Killer Burke. Oh, yeah. And they right. lured them, the right. Right, Frank Wright and a couple of his guys to the Mirror Flores apartments, and Burke mowed them down with machine gun fire. It was the first instance of a confirmed instance of a Thompson submachine gun being used in the Detroit underworld. Yeah, I mean, so you already you've talked about a drive-by shooting uh, of uh, the in, in the, the Oakland Sugar House gang. Mm -hmm. Here we have using a fully automatic, uh, <laughs> you know, to slaughter some people. So much for the uh, you know the the good old days, <laughs> gentlemen gangsters. The bad old days. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, this is some of the most violent shit for even for its time, right? Like yeah. because. Correct me if I'm wrong. Like Chicago, eventually the Tommy gun becomes like standard issue, no, notorious but, right for that. But but actually, you could say some of that we saw here earlier, right? Yeah, yeah. As much as much as it popular and as effective as it was, the Thompson submachine gun wasn't quite as popular with gangsters as like Hollywood makes it out to be. Tommy guns back then were like uh, assault rifles would be nowadays. Couple they, guys are they really look cool, but not practical yeah, necessarily. Yeah, a couple guys are really skilled with them and know how to use them. But right. like for close work, nine times out of ten, they'll probably just use a handgun yeah. or maybe a sawed-off shotgun. Yeah. No, that makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they look cool, but they're not necessarily practical. I mean, on the battlefield maybe, but like yeah. But when we're talking about gangland hits, you're right. Usually it's it's a matter of stealth, mm -hmm. right? I mean, although we 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 obviously we know of like examples where they shoot up the place but a lot of that i think is more so from like james cagney movies <laughs> and things like that mm -hmm. when they want to whack a guy it, it it's more likely back then just like uh with the mafia today they're gonna lure someone somewhere mm -hmm. ambush them and use a small firearm right right so um but in this case they did use they they did use a yeah, there was uh, uh, the Third Street Terrors were a group of uh, Jewish gangsters that came out of Chicago. Julie Bovetz, uh, Izzy Sutker, and Jaime Paul were their names. They attached themselves to the Purple Gang and eventually went off on their own. They did bootlegging down around Corktown. Uh, there was an Irish group out of uh, Corktown led by a guy named Bernie Doherty who hijacked, I'm trying to remember, the, ter the Third Street Terrors, uh, the, uh, the Jewish guys from Chicago, hijacked some of the Irish crew's booze. The Irish guys went over to their warehouse in the middle of the night to get the booze back, but Leibovitz and the others discovered them, so they hopped in one of their trucks and chased after the, 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 the Irish guy's car, and they started ramming it with a, with a truck. And while they're ramming the, the, the car with the truck, Joe Leibovitz is leaning out of the passenger side window with a Thompson submachine gun throwing bullets at him and end up killing one of them. That's something that you would almost, like, never see outside of, like, a gangster movie. Yeah, but it right. actually happened. Right. <laughs> right, on, uh, right on 8th Street. In fact, probably just a couple blocks away from where Tiger Stadium used to be. That's where this went down. So, the Irish gangsters in Corktown, Doherty. And what about was, um, who was the other guy? Was it Tallman? Who was the other? Uh, Tallman was. Was uh, he Irish gangster, too? Because he, he was in Corktown, wasn't he? That does, I mean, that doesn't they, mean he's he was Irish, a little but... bit north of Corktown. Okay, about he was like Midtown area. Okay, that's where I would put Tallman at. Yeah, Joe Tallman. I think his father was originally from England. I don't know if he was necessarily oh, okay. Irish. Okay, they were just kind of like I don't know. Just there was a couple, uh, kind of like a mixed bag. So would you say the Irish gangsters in Detroit or bootleggers, how whatever they were, they didn't seem to. Um, exert the same kind of influence or scale like the Irish did in Chicago. No, no, not at all. Or uh, even in St. Louis, too, right? Right, right. right. Yeah, uh, the, the Doherty gang was pretty small potatoes. Okay. You know, in fact, after this incident with, you know, the truck ramming and the machine gunning, uh, Bernie Doherty went away to prison. And, uh, of course, uh, the Third Street Terrors had to leave town for a while because they got fingered in another murder. And while they were gone, the Purple Gang took over booze distribution for Corktown. So... And then what was the other uh, major massacre? Uh, that would be uh, the Collingwood Manor massacre yeah, in September of right. 31. When the when the Third Street Terrors, their number finally came up. Yes. They got a little overextended. Uh, 
basically what happened was is that they had been falling on hard times by 31. Pretty much the only thing keeping them afloat was like a handbook that they ran. So the Sicilian mob from the east side, they started hitting up their handbook for fixed horse races and, you know, basically stealing a whole bunch of money out of their business. In order to pay off these betters, uh, the Third Street Terrors started buying pure alcohol on credit, not only from the Purple Gang, but from different mafia crews, both on the east side and downriver. And they just got so overextended. It's like it's only a matter of time before they get knocked Somebody's off. Somebody's going to kill them. <laughs> but, you know, all of you know, as always, a deuce-ass machina comes down from the sky when you're at your most trouble. Ray Bernstein <laughs> comes like, you know what? We're going to take you guys on board, make you full partners, the whole nine yards. You know, why don't you meet me over at the Collingwood Apartments? We'll discuss it. You know, of course, the three, three terrors <laughs> who are never going to do the game show circuit. You know, that's like, yeah, let's go. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, the only thing was they took a guy with them named Sally Levine. Sally Levine was a good friend of Ray Bernstein's and probably helped let the Third Street Terrors, let their guard down a little bit. Mm -hmm. So they go to the apartment. Uh, Harry Fleischer's there, as is Harry Keywell and Irving Milberg. And uh, Ray Bernstein says, you know, hey, where's Scotty at with the books? Let me go give him a call. So he leaves the apartment, then goes out to the car and starts honking the horn. That's a signal. So Fleischer and the others pull guns and shoot the Third Street Terrors right dead right there on the couch. But they left Sally Levine alive. That's the kicker because he's Ray Bernstein's buddy. Their decision to leave him alive, which would really come back to bite them in the ass, but more on that in a second, was part of a plan to frame him for the murders. Oh, okay. What they were going to do is take Sally Levine out of there, uh, plant his fingerprints on one of the murder weapons used in the massacre, kill Sally Levine, and plant that 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 hot gun on him and said, hey, police, there's your... your, your. <laughs> yeah. Only thing was, the police got uh, Sally Levine before the Purples did. And, you know, after... We got about 36 hours or so in the quote-unquote goldfish bowl. Solly spilled his guts. Bernstein and Keelwell and Merle Big, they all got busted. Harry Fleischer is the only one who managed to make it out of town. And all three of those guys got life in prison. Yeah, I was going to say that was Ray Bernstein. Yep. Right. He, I think he, by the time he got out of prison, he didn't, he wasn't alive. Or he didn't live for much longer after that because he, no, he, he was an older a, dude. Yeah, he had a stroke in the spring of 1963. By the time he got a mercy parole. Yeah. And he was admitted, immediately admitted to uh, U of M Medical Center in Ann Arbor where and he died I, a couple years later. And he was the only Bernstein purple, I think, who did significant time. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Yeah. Scott and I talked about he, Ray basically took it on the chin for the sins of all of them. Yeah. Right, and then the other three, Joe, Abe, and what was the other? Izzy, uh, was the Izzy, last one. Izzy. Yep. Those guys. I mean, I they, I think they all. I mean, they they were arrested before, but I don't, did they ever do time? I, I don't know. No, none of them ever did. Any I mean, I know they were like time. in some of those, you know, well publicized trials. You know, they were arrested and yeah, like they that, they beat but, every major case and uh, yeah. Right, so, um, pretty violent. Era and and just the the landscape you're describing. Think about how precarious it was to be then to try to run a, a card game, a bootlegging operation, a brothel. I mean, talk about like uh, kill or be killed. Mm -hmm. Like all these, you think you're a bad motherfucker involved in the underworld, and there's other dudes who are like ready to take you out and take your action. I mean, pretty scary. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like I said, yeah, you, you choose to swim with sharks, eventually you're going to get bit somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, especially with these heavy hitters out there, the Purples, the Italian Mafia, um, others. So before we get to, like, the sort of uh, – this is, like, the, the the rise of the Purple Gang and their, and their you know, well-known status, and we'll get to the fall. But the overall landscape – so we know we've already established there's an Italian Mafia. Uh, there's an Irish group. Maybe they were marginal, but they were there. Um, were there any other ethnic crime groups? I mean, didn't the Polish have uh, a, somewhat of a gang? There, were, there was, was there was a, a safe cracking gang out of Hamtramck that was primarily Polish in makeup. Was it's that called, the Jaworski gang or something like that? Or no, that they, they were armed robbers. Out oh, okay, of Pennsylvania. Okay, okay, these safe crackers were known as the the Lizard Gang. Oh yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Okay. There were there was also a. Uh, uh, the Black Numbers operation as well in Paradise Valley, which uh, was actually run by uh, John Roxborough. Oh, uh, yeah. A uh, uh, very wealthy man who uh, published a newspaper called the Detroit Owl. Yeah. And who was Joe Lewis's first manager. If there was, if there were gentlemen gangsters back then, which we find a dubious, he would be, yeah, he he would, would be, he would be one, one of them. He yeah. would be one of them. If there, yeah. 
to the extent that that was a real mm-hmm. that was a real thing. So that's the uh, landscape. Uh, and then, of course, there were just miscellaneous, you know, that not really defined by any kind of ethnic grouping, right? Just like, yeah, like like Joe Tallman would be one of those guys. Yeah, right. And um, was it who was it? Legs Layman. Uh, yeah, yeah, kidnapper. Yeah, kidnap. So a lot of lot of guys involved in different hustles. Yeah, it's like it's like the Wild West. Yeah, I mean, right, right. It's a good the way city to put is it. so close to Canada and the, this gold rush of illegal liquor. It's all that's separating them is that that little stretch of river. I mean, what? It's not even a half mile wide. Yeah, at, right. At most. Yeah. Right, right. It's too easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lefty Clark, right? Was yeah, he, he was, was a like gambler. a gambling czar or something yep. like that. He used and, to walk around uh, downtown with a little pet monkey perched on his shoulder. Oh, yeah, and he was like a <laughs> kind of like a politically connected dude, right? Wasn't he sort of, I wouldn't say gentleman gangster, but didn't he have, didn't he like hobnob with some like. Yeah, he moved in an up, uh, upper circles. Yeah. yeah, I mean, as far as those kind of guys went, mm-hmm. he was one that was more likely to be hobnobbing with upper. Yeah, he had a, his gambling, he had a uh, casino on uh, Grand River that was very popular in the underworld. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the exact address, but I want to say it's quite literally where, like, Motor City is, like, today, oh. which would be fitting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. So that's, uh, for people who aren't from uh, Detroit, that's in the downtown mm-hmm. area. Um, so the Purple Gang is, uh, at the height of its power, what would you say, the early 30s? Uh, the top of their power would be uh, late 20s. Late 20s. Uh, they, they acquitted at the Cleaners and Dyers trial in 28. And that, that's pretty much the pinnacle is like 29. Okay. At the height of their power, everybody, they're suspected of doing the Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago, which they didn't, by the way, despite what you read on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's all, that's sort of something you'll hear is that Capone imported the Purples to do that. You want to address that? Sure. Uh, basically, the Purple Gang got mixed up in the Valentine's Day ma- massacre cases because they were shipping liquor to, uh, to Al Capone in Chicago as a, Old Log Cabin Whiskey, which was an American bourbon that was distilled in Montreal back then and smuggled across the, the Detroit River. That's one of the few successful smuggling operations that the Purple Gang did outside of hijacking. Mm-hmm. They were able to meet Chicago's demand for thousands and thousands of cases of booze. And naturally, of course, Bugs Moran was hijacking Al Capone's trucks. But um, the actual shooters in the massacre were a group of hired gunsels out of St. Louis, which included... Fred Killer Burke, the same guy that did the Miraflores Massacre for the Purple Gang. In fact, I mean, the Miraflores Massacre was basically a rough blueprint for what was going to happen in Chicago yeah, on Valentine's good point. Day. Yeah. Basically, these St. Louis guys working with a crew of Capone gangsters from the north side known as the Circus Cafe Gang, guys like Claude Maddox and whatnot, they were the ones that pulled off the massacre. The massacre was basically a military-style raid that got completely out of hand and missed Bugs Moran. Right. Moran actually showed up as it was ending. Yeah, ironically. And he saw yeah. the guys coming out. According to what Moran told his relatives, he wasn't baffled by the plot so, as much as, you know, his garage getting raided. But the fact is that he didn't recognize either of the fucking so-called gangsters that were coming out of there with their hands up. Not yeah. knowing what the hell was going on, he went back to his hotel. Yeah. Once he got there, that's when he found out what happened. Yeah. But the Purple Gang got involved in the uh, case because everybody and their mother in, in the know was – knew that Moran was hijacking those Purple Gang liquor shipments. So the Chicago police start showing mugshots of Purple Gang members to potential witnesses. There was a, a woman who ran a rooming house not too far from the garage where the hit took place who partially identified the mugshots of Phil and Harry Keywell as two of the guys who rented a room. And then one newspaper reporter reported that a woman a couple blocks down thought she recognized Eddie Fletcher the boxer as being there. But internal Chicago police paperwork says that that's completely mistaken. Mm. She never identified anybody. Yeah. And once uh, the woman, her name was Mrs. Duty, thought about it a little bit more. She's like, no, they're not really. The, the Keywells weren't the guy, same guys after. And it makes sense. At the time of the massacre, Phil Keywell was 20 years old and Harry Keywell was all of 18. Yeah. There's, like Capone's not going to rely on a couple of guys barely out of their teens yeah, or something. Not something like that. that big. And just, just that brief identification is how the Keywells and by extension, the whole purple gang yeah. got mixed up in the Valentine's day case and never got unmixed. Right. But there, it is true that the purples were connected to Capone. They were definitely yes, selling. Absolutely. Absolutely. They were. And, um, so I think it's, um, important if we're going to contextualize the fall of the so-called purple gang, I think a lot of it, um, 
or maybe the the biggest case study we can find is um, the Milkman, right? Like Henry Millman. Oh, Millman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's that's what 37, 38, yeah. 37? Yeah. Her- Hollywood could not have cast a better gangster than Harry Millman. I mean, he was yeah. handsome. He was charismatic. He was hard drinking. Didn't they call him the Milkman? Wasn't that one of his nicknames or no? Did I, just, I, don't, I don't believe did so. Did I just make that up? No. <laughs> it works. <laughs> <laughs> okay. When, we, when you get your Hollywood, we'll talk about that before we we'll make sure we put that in. <laughs> This was a nickname that we just made up on. <laughs> but yeah, go so go ahead. So here so he's a purple gang enforcer. Yeah, a badass. Uh he went he grew up in the in the same neighborhood as all the boys. In fact, he grew up on the same street that the Bernsteins live. Uh, yeah. Winder Street. Uh he was charismatic, hard drinking, uh, you know, he's it's like the hero of a Calypso song. He loved every woman and whipped every man, that kind of <laughs> shit. The only trouble with Harry Bowman is that, quite frankly, he was probably born about five or ten years too late. Mm. By the time he hit his stride, in the Harry Mellon was one of the two guys who took out Abe Axler and Eddie Fletcher in 1933. He was the guy that they went up to Pontiac to meet. Yeah, Harry Mellon was the guy who drove Abe Chrysler to the spot on Corton Road where they were found dead. And Harry Mellon was the one who turned around from the driver's seat and popped Eddie Fletcher with a 45 automatic. So that's how he really made his bones, if you Sure, know. right. But see, here's the thing. By the time that Harry Millman hit his stride in the, in the mid-30s, Purple Gang was really trending downward. They were falling apart. And part of that was due to the loose structure they had. Yeah, The right. top-tier gangsters were doing fine. Abe Bernstein was making all kinds of money. Right. He was in partnership. He was getting closer to the Italians, closer and yeah. closer to the Italians. Right? Uh, yeah, uh, Joe Bernstein had gotten out of the rackets because one of his right. underlings had actually shot him and almost killed him in an opium craze rampage back in 1930. So he moved out west. Yeah. And and then Abe's getting closer to the Italians, and then right there were some incarcerate right some guys yeah, got Ray, prosecuted. Yeah, Ray's locked up, and uh, Izzy basically followed Joe wherever he went. Yeah, but yeah, Joe got out of like the hard stuff, according to what Scott told me. Uh, uh, Joe Bernstein's wife Marguerite pulled him aside after he got shot and basically told him, "It's either them or me." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, good for her. <laughs> he made the right choice. <laughs> but the lower tier guys like Abe Axler, Eddie Fletcher, whatnot, they're not locked up, but. They don't really have any business sense. They're killers. Yeah. Prohibition's ending. Good point. We don't really, they're, you know, what the hell are we supposed to do? Yeah, they're tough guys. They're tough guys. Not to mention they're also drug addicts. They're both opium smokers. So that could have clouded their judgment as well. Yeah. Yeah, that scene from Once Upon a Time in America with the Nero's and the opium, that that is very historically accurate. Yeah. A lot of the purples were into opium. That was their drug of choice. So Axler and Fletcher started doing dumb shit. They tried to crash into the the Sicilian mob's uh, heroin racket. And, you know, you know, the, the bosses, you know, they, they told, you know, what the fuck are you doing? Stop that shit. <laughs> of course they don't because they're right. skulled. Right. Abe Bernstein basically came up with a solution to chill everybody out. He lent uh, Axler and Fletcher money to buy a brewery, which they would be able to legally manufacture beer after Prohibition ended in a couple months. Yeah. That way they'll have a living and they won't get into it with the Sicilians anymore. Yeah. But... Abe Axler and Eddie Fletcher. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, yeah, it was a (laughs) win-win. Right, right. But Axler and Fletcher got denied a license uh, to to legally produce alcohol by the state. You know, they were just a little bit too notorious. Yeah. So Abe's like, okay, the deal fell through. Now give me that, you know, 500,000 bucks or whatever I gave you back, and they didn't. (laughs) That's not smart. (laughs) That, that, That was pretty much the nail in the coffin right there. Yeah. And so, so some of the guys, so in some cases, they're they're killing their own guys. Yeah. So you got dudes that either are ill-equipped for leadership, dudes that are getting killed, dudes that are going to prison, and this is why you say like they're trending downward. Yeah. As if we think of it as a cohesive syndicate. Out of all the purple gang members who died violently over the years, I'd say to seventy-five to eighty percent of them died at the hands of their friends. Yeah. They were right. their own worst enemy. Yeah. So they're so so at this point. Uh, Harry Millman is um, one of the guys who maybe this. If, tell me if this cliche is correct. He's not reading the the tea leaves, right? He's not right. He's, he doesn't really he doesn't really care. He's finally coming to his own. He's yeah. finally trending upward. Yeah, and he absolutely hated the Italian mob. Yeah, right. With a capital right. H. Right. There's a, a an urban myth which I choose to believe, uh, you know, it's in my book, that yeah. he got into a fight with Scarface Joe Bomarito right. in a bar. Right. And Scar- by this point in time, Bomarito is a fucking captain. Yeah, yeah. And, right. they and get notorious in- dude in his own right. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, cold blood. By anyone's yeah. standards, Bomarito is a cold blooded killer. But right. Of course, Milman hated him because he was Italian and soft handed. And like, yeah. Okay, Harry, have at it. <laughs> Milman beats the living shit out of Bomarito in this bar fight. Right. Which, by uh, by any metric, signs his death warrant. Sure. But Milman still continues to antagonize the Italians. He shoots up their brothels, embarrasses their customers, steals money from them. Bomarito's getting a shave in a barber's chair. He walks in there takes the hot towel and spits right in his face and runs off. I mean, it's... <laughs> Again, it's like a Hollywood script. <laughs> <laughs> and and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, my understanding was Abe Bernstein was trying to intervene on his behalf, saying, like, I can't protect... You're going to keep on fucking up. I can't protect you. Yeah. Like <laughs> Abe initially tried to go, to go to bat for Harry, but he just... No one would not quit. He yeah. just... Yeah. He was a man of rampant appetites. You know, the, the, you know, the, always, the gas pedal was always to the floor. Yeah. Finally, Bernstein finally just threw up his head and said, you know what, pal, you're on your own. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was a matter of time. Right. And so um, they get to him in 37? Yeah. At the, Thanksgiving of 37. And where was that at? The, de the deli? Yeah, uh, Boski's Deli. I think that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. yeah it's at uh, 12th and Hazelwood. There was a delic very popular delicatessen there. Harry's in there partying with a couple of ladies and whatnot. And... Uh, couple guys just gun him down right there at the bar in front of like a hundred witnesses. Of course, they also hit like three or four innocent bystanders as one. Yeah. One of Harry Millman's guys took a bullet that ended up dying a few weeks later. Yeah. Uh, according to uh, underworld consensus is that uh, two guys from murder incorporated were brought in from New York to do it. Uh, yeah. Pep Strauss and happy Myoni. Right. Yeah. Piz Pittsburgh, Phil Strauss. Yeah. Was, that, was that his name? I always call him Pep because that's what his buddies called him. But yeah, okay. Pittsburgh, uh, Pittsburgh Phil does yeah. a hell of a lot cooler. <laughs> <laughs> um, so is this, I mean, I, in my book, I make the case that not only was this um, yeah, strategically in some ways the, the end of what we think of as the Purple Gang, but also symbolically that like anyone who was left realized that they had to play ball with the Italians if they were going yeah. to sur survive in the underworld. Yeah, I think... I, I kind of take that same tack in my book that, like, the Purple Gang, like, as an organized force, kind of somewhat ceased to exist after Harry Millman got knocked off. But, but they weren't done yet, though. So here's the thing. They're, uh, they had a lot of connections in, like, the upper part of Michigan state government. Yeah. Specifically with a Republican power broker by the name of Frank McKay. Yeah. And it's through McKay that what was left of the Purple Gang got mixed up in their last violent act. And that was the assassination of Michigan State Senator Warren Hooper in 1945. Right. Yeah, that was a pretty, uh, I mean, that headline uh, generating. Uh, mm -hmm. It's one thing to kill some, you know, pimp or gambler or something like that, but a, a political assassination. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, just the Hooper case alone would be good enough for like a movie. Yeah. They, yeah. they gunned him down on the highway. Is that where they, yeah. they, they drove? I, I, where, where was it? I want to say it was not too far away from Albion because that's where yeah. he lived. Yeah. I've actually been to the spot. Uh, okay. You know, yeah. Did they, they drive him off? Did they, like, knock his car off the road or something like that? And then uh, What happened what was, was is, uh, of course, nobody was actually convicted. But, well, yeah, Harry Fleischer and his brother and a couple other guys went down for conspiracy charges. But the actual killing itself remains officially unsolved. Yeah. But basically what happened was is that Ray Bernstein and Harry Keywell, who by that point essentially ran Jackson Prison a hell of a lot yeah. more than the warden did. Right. Let got out of prison for a day to do oh, this murder. Right, that's right. <laughs> and basically they were waiting alongside him on the highway and uh, Harry Keywell moved the car into Hooper's path, skids Hooper's groggy from the crash when Ray Bernstein runs over and blows his brains out. Yeah. And then they got in the car and sped back to the prison. And, and why did they, why did they kill him again? What, what did it have to do with the, He was going to testify against McKay and a whole bunch of other people because he had been paid money to, uh, I think it was tank a bill about racetrack totalizers. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Those totalizing machines that, like, you know, ensure yeah. legitimate odds Yeah. for betting. So there's a lot of money at stake well, yeah. if, he, if he goes through if he goes through. Yeah, that, that. that was the lifeblood of, like, the top-tier purple guys who were still yeah. around was that was like illegal gambling right. stuff at racetracks. Right, so that was a lot of, lot of money at stake if that goes down. So just because, um, yeah, that's probably the last major case study we think of as the remnants of the purple gang being involved in, but even though they they really don't exist as a, as its own syndicate, the guys who aren't in prison, the guys who didn't move away, it's not like the, 
I mean, some guys like Joe Bernstein sort of go straight. He moves away and he kind of he kind of goes straight. But some of those guys, I mean, it, it's not like they went and got day jobs. I mean, they were some still racketeers. There were still a couple of tough guys <laughs> on the uh, the streets of like, in, in like the fifties. Yeah, right. As a matter of fact, in that recent movie by Steven Soderbergh, uh, No Sudden Move, I think, which yeah. was really good, by the way. Yeah. Uh, the Purple Gang gets a shout out. In fact, they might have even had a scene. There's a shooting in a, a restaurant that might have been done by anonymous, faceless members of the Purple Gang because they're. Yeah. So that was uh, is that that's the, the that movie about the auto industry kind yeah, of. Yeah, it took ties place in fifty four. Yeah. So, so some of the purple guys, they're still around, and we know that in many ways they were working with the Italian mafia. And even as recently as like the 1980s, there were some Jewish racketeers around who were working closely with the Italians who were like kind of teenagers in the last. Yeah. In the last. Candy fit, you Davidson know what I mean? was one of the last yeah, right, of the last. Right, I remember when right. he got locked up. I remember last time I remember hearing something about him was in like 92. Yeah, when he was and, locked and up. he was, we had Patty Naughton on our show, Shameless Self-Promotion. You can listen to our episode with uh, former undercover DEA agent Patty Naughton. And she talked about Candy Davidson. Because of this history, she said even the Italian guys, like they showed him like deferential treatment, even though he's obviously not a made guy, he's not Italian, but they, he, he sort of carried, had that kind of stature because mm-hmm. of he technically his DNA, his gangster DNA could be traced back to the, to the purples. I think uh, I think uh, Scott told me a story once uh, after Mike Selleck, uh, Mikey Selleck got out of prison in the late 60s. I think this would be around like the early 70s. Mikey Selleck was like doing some uh, bookmaking out at uh, Hazel Park. And uh, one of the young guys in uh, the Detroit outfit at that time goes up to him, sees, you know, this old Jewish guy doing this, you know, unsanctioned bookmaking or so he yeah. says, tries to shake him down for some money. And Mikey Selleck basically tells him to go fuck himself. <laughs> so... This this young Italian guys go back to I think he went back to Zarelli himself. Yeah. To, to complain about it, Zarelli basically is like, leave that old fucking purple alone. He'll kill you in a heartbeat. <laughs> yeah. See what I mean? <laughs> so so they still had that kind of uh, kept that rep. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. Even, even in the even the late days. <laughs> so tell us about. Um, so I already mentioned some of uh, Dan's books, Off Color: The Violent History of Detroit's Notorious Purple Gang. I love that book. I used it a lot oh, in terms you. of my own uh, research uh, for my book. Um, in fact, I was, and, I, and Dan and I are friends, so I've told him about this before. I was, I was working on my book, and I was reading this, and I was like, he, he's going to get his book out. He's going to beat me. Because <laughs> his book was so good. I was like, this fucker, he's going to. Because I, I could tell by your research, I was like, I know he could do an Italian book, too. I know he can. And, he, and, uh, and then you did end up releasing the following book. Thank goodness it was after mine. But Vanita, The Birth of the Detroit Mafia, just, it's just packed with um, information. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think there will ever be a work of scholarship that's more comprehensive. Oh, well, thank you so much. Than this, um, in terms of the old school Detroit mafia, but you've published a couple of books about the, um, I'm sorry, uh, the St. Louis stuff. Yes. Uh, the Egan's rats and, uh, the gangs of St. Louis, which covers other gangs in St. Louis during prohibition, like the Egan's rats rivals, the uh, the Hogan gang. Yeah. Like their boss was a, a state beverage, Missouri state beverage inspector. Yeah. Uh, the cuckoo gang. Yeah. Who actually started out as a baseball team, but they actually <laughs> turned out to be some really right. powerful sons of bitches. Uh, different factions of uh, the Sicilian mob. They had their own names. They very autonomous. They were the green ones. Yeah. One of them was named the Pillow Game because their boss took a machine gun round through the ass <laughs> and had to use a, a pillow to sit down. Uh, and there was the Russo Gang. Uh, they were Sicilian American bootleggers who. But the the three mafia factions in St. Louis spent a lot of prohibition fighting each other. Yeah. And they got into a gang war with the Cuckoo Gang and lost. Yeah. Which gave them a real big black eye with the rest of the bosses in the country. No, I, I think that's one of the reasons why St. Louis never had the same stature. Right. They, the the, the bosses the tend families. to look at St. Louis as kind of like the minor league. Yeah, I think you're right. Kansas yeah. City had a hell of a lot more pull than St. Louis did. Now. Yeah, yeah, because St. Louis, they're sandwiched in between Chicago and Kansas City, and those, those were serious yeah. players. <laughs> yeah, by, yeah by, the, by the end of Prohibition, maybe even before the end of Prohibition, basically by the beginning of the 30s, by that point, the St. Louis family was little more than an extension of the Capone outfit. Yeah, the right. The boss of the fam- the St. Louis family at that point, uh, Frank Abate, was basically a Capone guy. Yeah. And some of the uh, St. Louis guys ended up in Detroit, too. Yeah. Uh, but that was uh, the Licavolis, yeah. the Macheris, Bomberitos. Yeah, they're, 
uh, a lot of them got their start in St. Louis. Scarface Joe definitely did. Did, did. Camerata too? Yeah, I, Camerata too. Yeah, I one. thought so. So, um, some great books about Detroit. Great books about St. Louis. What's going on now? You have a forthcoming book, correct? Correct yes, me if I'm that, wrong. That one, the, my forthcoming uh, is a straight biography of a Chicago gangster by the name of Frank McGurlin. His name might be familiar to readers who are familiar with Al Capone's story. Frank McGurlin was from the South Side. Uh, he's noted as the first gangster to use a Thompson submachine gun in Chicago the city that made it world famous. He's also a cold-blooded killer who increasingly slipped into madness as prohibition went on. Uh, he's notably uh, killed his wife during an argument and shot her pet dogs as well. Oh. And uh, See, among that, many other things. That to me is unacceptable. I don't care about killing other humans. <laughs> <laughs> That's going too far. That's the first time now I'm out. <laughs> now yeah, but, I'm morally outraged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this one is a real pa passion project for me. It's a, uh, I wanted to try to make it a, a fresh, in-depth look at what is ostensibly familiar territory, and that is prohibitionary Chicago. Guys like uh, Capone, the Northside Gang, they're familiar to crime buffs. Sure. They are supporting characters in my book. And I deliberately keep it that way. I go in depth about other Southside gangsters like Joe Saltis, Spike O'Donnell, Danny Stanton, Ralph Shelton, and the Reagan Colts. You know, names that might seem familiar but have never been covered in yeah. depth. I want to give them a much more thorough examination. And I have. This one, this book, quite frankly, is going to be huge. That's why I haven't released it yet. I'm still editing it down. Okay. I want to try to get it to a little over 800 pages. Oh, wow. That's... Yeah, you'll be able to kill cockroaches yeah, with my new book. That's for sure. So, so... Would you say this is a biography or not necessarily? It's a biography. Okay. It's a, it's a broad biography. But yeah. yeah. It's a biography. Which will be interesting. The, the focus is on Frank McCurlin. Most you, you basically will follow him literally from when his parents got engaged to the moment he took his last breath. Were you able to find any of his surviving relatives? Yes. I've spoken to wow. some of his relatives. Yes. Awesome. Great people. That's and, awesome. Uh, they were really looking forward to this. And they were in fact, helpful. In fact, they even said, you know, we've been trying to figure out for years why no one ever bought, written a book about Frank. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That, that, that's really helpful and useful. Um. So it'll be interesting to read because uh, up until this point, you've looked at organizations more like macro. It'll be interesting to, to read what you're saying in terms of a biographical, you know, sketch of a, of a, of a, of a gangster. Um, now, are you at liberty to talk about, I know you and Bernie have some Hollywood things. <laughs> okay. Okay. Mom's the word. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately. Okay. So, but there, there, we may see you involved in some other, other, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Other media. Let's just say, we'll leave it. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, absolutely. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> uh, because I mean, these stories are fantastic and we, we only scratched the surface of, uh, you know, <clears throat> looking at oh, Detroit yeah. prohibition era. Talk all night about. Yeah, stuff. yeah. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the, the 1910s, the 19, uh, you know, the, or the early 1900s, the the teens, the 20s, 30s, so many colorful Yeah, the uh, Giannola Vitale war in particular is almost gothic. I mean, just the level yeah. of bloodshed. I mean, it's yeah. there was no diplomacy. It was just kill, kill, and kill yeah. again, betray. I yeah. Mean, yeah, betrayal, it's yeah. Like, it's, like, it's like a lost Godfather prequel. That's kind of how I look at yeah, it. Yeah, I agree. And and I think something I've, I've talked to Scott about is, um, and no one asked my opinion on this, obviously, but I felt that, Although I liked Boardwalk Empire, I didn't love it. I liked it. I felt like that was a missed opportunity. That that show should have been about Detroit, in my opinion. It would have been a more interesting show to have that era, but Detroit. And you have the Purples and Harry Bennett yeah. ties to Ford Motor Company. And you got the Italians and the other you know stuff we're talking about. Um, political corruption. The Detroit River. I, I think that would have been more interesting just, than, than Atlantic City. Unfortunately, Detroit gets no respect. I mean, it's yeah. just... I understand that's what's frustrating about this particular field. I know that New York and Capone are the ones that sell. Sure. That's why everybody focuses on them. Sure, of course. But yeah. there's just so much more out there. I mean, like you said, we could have based an entire series yeah. around Detroit in the old days. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And uh, um, I mean, I like Boardwalk Empire, but I mean, Atlantic I City. I did too. It, it wasn't perfect, but I think I. I there was parts of it that I really liked. Yeah, I mean, I thought the, the costume design, oh, the yeah, set design were the set, first rate. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, that that alone, it's worth watching. Even though Stephen Graham's portrayal of Al Capone is completely historically inaccurate, I thought it was fun to watch. Oh, yeah, he's a great actor. Yeah, he's yeah. a great actor, but yeah, I just he turned him into a Tony Montana caricature. Well, and, and also, I mean, like, yeah. how the, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you probably know more about it than I do, but um, um, 
I, I'm going to say Nucky Thompson, but it's Nucky Johnson. Yeah. Was that, that was his real yeah, name? Yeah, that's his real name. I mean, he was sort of a corrupt politician, maybe racketeer. He wasn't a crime boss, right? Like, and that show, they make him out to seem like he was a crime boss. Is yeah, I, I don't know the extent of his operation, but yeah, yeah I think they did embellish it right. a little that, bit for, I mean. you know, entertainment purposes. Right. I mean, I mean I, we know— I'm he, not much of a stickler for that kind of stuff anymore. I understand that they got oh, embellished yeah, no, a little. No, no, no. Yeah, I'm not either, but I'm just saying, like, uh, it didn't help. <laughs> right, right. I think part of the problem what ended up killing the show is uh, that badass set that they had at the boardwalk, which I yeah. loved. yeah. It was destroyed by Superstorm Sandy. Oh, I didn't realize that. You notice at that point, that's when the story kind of oh, shifts. Oh, to New York, yeah. Yeah, to, to, to New <laughs> York right. and Chicago. I didn't think about that. And Steve Buscemi makes... basically becomes a supporting character in yeah. a show that's ostensibly about him. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Well, hopefully we'll see more uh, about this in the future. Uh, Dan, thank you very much. Is there anything, you, uh, so you have a website or anything to... You don't, uh, I mean, where can people find your stuff? Just on Amazon? Oh, yeah, Amazon. All, my book, uh, all four of my books are available on Amazon, and my next one will be published through Amazon, so be able to find it there as well. Yeah, nice. Um, well, hopefully uh, you'll come back again. There's yeah, more absolutely. we can talk about. Uh, we'll have Bernie in-house. And uh, in the meantime, thanks, everyone, for listening. Make sure you support us on social media, at Gangster Podcast. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and every time you like it or share our post, you're helping us grow the show. So please do that. And thanks for your questions and comments. Uh, we try to, you know, get back to you as fast as we can. In the meantime, we'll be back next week for Daniel Waugh. He's a great dude. Go buy his books. <laughs> I'm Jimmy Bucciolato, Original Gangsters Podcast. Take care. <laughs>